University's talk show, Taking Old School Viral. I'm your host, Manda O'Fox Gillespie. It's embarrassing, all the stupid things I can think of to think about. Is there anything that could really bring my mind back to myself? Hello, neighbor, and welcome to Folk You Radio, where we ask our neighbors, what do you know? Folk University is an experiment in neighborliness, in slow learning, in using our interests, our skills, and our beliefs as a way of connecting and bringing each other closer in community. Where are you listening from today, neighbor? Who are the people that have walked and cared for the land, water, and air where you live, work, and play. Cortez Community Radio sits on the ancestral and territorial lands of the Klahus, Klaaman, and Homako peoples. I'd like to thank this land, the people who have walked this land through time, and all those that continue to love and work to honor this place we call home. Today we have a sort of Cortez Community and our Forest 101. A little bit more about this particular presentation. On April 20th, a group of islanders met to share our collective memory of the unique relationship we have had in protecting our forests, especially against major outside logging efforts. More than 100 island residents came out to watch and others joined on Zoom. They were young and old, and many people gave talks about their own research, stewardship, and activism as it relates to the Cortez forests. Also, there were representatives of Mosaic, who manage the land for Island Timberlands, a.k.a. IT. This was a sort of presentation for Mosaic and also a major reminder, uh, an educational event for new people or those who may have forgotten what has gone on as it relates to the Cortez community and our forests. It's a really inspiring, moving, and deeply educational Uh, um, It was a really moving, deeply educational and inspiring evening, and I look forward to being able to replay these presentations now for you. Good evening. This is wonderful. It's been years since this hall feels to me like it's been this full. My name is Kristen, if you don't know me, and I am facilitating this celebration of our forests. And we are going to begin in the best way, she said, pointing to the back, with children, the next generation, indeed. All right, here we go.
trees, go out of their homes, cool us, protect climate, sequester carbon for song, hold moisture, grow, fungal network, hold soil, wilderness, protect wetlands, place to hike and camp, filter, quiet, healing, biodiversity, home, forever forests. Good evening, and thank you so much for being here as the poster of Forever Forest goes up. I want to take a moment to acknowledge that we are meeting this evening and living and working on the traditional and ancestral territories of the Klahus, the Slyoman, and the Homoko people. I also would like to acknowledge a loss that this settler community experiences, perhaps so deep and profound we don't even know it. And that is that we do not live on the bones of our ancestors. Those bones have someone else living on them. And one of the remarkable things about a place like this and love for a place like this is that over time, over generations, we come to be this place so that our children and our children's children can live on our bones. And I think in a very deep way, that is the point of tonight. So we will begin with Bruce Ellingson. And I asked all of the presenters to give me a sentence to introduce them. Forest, and then the co-op, and then the partnership with Clahoos. Bruce has always been in that. So I think if the forest chose a grandfather, it would be right here. Well, I'm extremely grateful to see so many of you coming out to this evening's meeting. Because as, as most of you know, and, and it's expressed here tonight, forestry on Cortez Island is a, a subject that we're all engaged in. Quietly when there's not much happening, or when things are going fairly well with the community forest operations, which is set up to reflect the community's desires for how we're going to manage the forests on the island. But also even more uh, in, intimately when there's um, proposals for activities in the forest that are coming from off the island that we're all have a vested interest in because we're all living here. We expect to be living here and our future generations, not, the, not only the non-indigenous people, but with the Clahoos band members as well, as, long, as far ahead as we can see. So it's great to be engaged in this. I've, I've always found Cortez community to be full of people who are prepared to get engaged in all the things that are going on around here. And forestry is one of the many things that we, many of us, spend a lot of time and energy in supporting and engaging in. So thank you. How am I going to do this now? I'm at the age now where I've got to read things off of 
screen, otherwise I'll probably forget half of what I was going to say, or the order that I was going to say it in. Anyway, my life was tied to Cortez since my birth in 1940. My great-grandfather, Michael Manson, was the first settler that I know of on Cortez Island in 1886, when he took out a preemption on the Linnea, what's now the Linnea farmlands. So Cortez is, in, is my home, and I expect my bones will lie here. My heart and my interest in the long-term well-being of the island are in me. I want to run through a brief history of uh, Cortez Island leading up to our community forest formation and up to today. A refresher for some, but for any newcomers that haven't been involved in the activities that were ongoing quite regularly on the island about around forestry, it'll be a new information, I hope. Cortez has always, or not always been here as we know it. It was subsumed or submerged under the glaciers around 12,000 years ago when they finally started letting it go and the earth rebounded, came up out of the sea. It was only at that point probably just the tops of the little islands of the humps of Cortez that were showing above the seas, 80 meters uh, above where the sea level now lies. We'd be sitting in 10 meters of, of water if we were sitting in the all here at that time. Life gradually emerged and populated the emerging bare landscape. Soil was created, plants grew, and vigorous forest ecosystems developed, allowing the arriving First Nations people to thrive for thousands of years on the abundant resources that developed. In 1871, British Columbia entered the Canadian Confederation. The remnant First Nations people were swept onto aside onto reserves, and the rest became Crown land. Settlers and homesteaders were strongly encouraged, mainly for the British subjects. Up to 1929, under the preemption laws, one could apply for any land considered to be suitable for farming for a $2 registration fee and get it free as long as you occupied it for five years, cleared five acres of land, and improved the land to the value of $10 per acre. Pretty good deal in those days even. <laughs> Bloody good deal in today's terms. <laughs> On Cortez, this occurred over much of the south and central island, to a lesser degree in the north part. By the 1940s, the accessible old-growth forests on most of the homesteads and much of the crown land on Cortez were gone, logged for clearing land, and also as a means of earning a living. During the 1950s and 60s, McMillan Bodell, some of you will know that big timber company that used to exist, uh, bought about 4,200 acres of the privately owned old homesteads selecting the best timber-growing potential ones, paying between $75 and $25 an acre, somewhere in that range. These lands since then continue to benefit from very low taxes under the managed forest land category. In 1979, Raven Lumber from Campbell River, another timber company, had acquired around 2,000 acres of private forest land scattered on Cortez and began logging and continued the operations through the 80s, increasingly disturbing many of our communities members with the resulting rapid changes and impacts. This issue generated many community meetings, and I mean many, in the Gorgeville. I can remember almost weekly, certainly monthly ones throughout the 80s, about how did the community feel about future forest management on Cortez Island. And the outcome was that since we were all going to have to, as communities, continue to live here with whatever the results were going to be, we wanted to have a voice in the 
management of the forests on Cortez. So we have done that pretty well, I think, over the years and continue to. MNB came to Cortez in 1988 and 89 to log some of their lands west of the Clahouse village in Squirrel Cove. When they were going to return in 1990 to keep on logging there, they were asked, why there? Their reply was, other areas in Cortez are too sensitive. Well, that response enraged many people in the Clues and non-Indigenous communities and led to a blockade of their uh, activities by about 120 people for a couple of days, to which they finally agreed to discontinue their plans and they came back with changed approaches in about another three years. Through the 90s, though, a steadily strengthening working relationship developed between Clahouse First Nation and the non-Indigenous communities as an awareness grew of the future benefits for the two communities to work together. This led to a signing on July 9, 1999 of a formal Memorandum of Understanding between the Clahouse First Nation and the Cortez Ecoforestry Society that existed at that time, with over 250 people attending and that committed the two communities to work together to gain control of and manage forest lands on Cortez Island under an ecosystem-based management plan. At the same time, the desires for acquiring the Mac and Blow McMillan lands to add to the community forest land base also grew. In June of 1999, an announcement was made by the, of the pending sale of Mac and Blow's private timberlands and crown land harvesting rights on the coast to Weyerhaeuser Company from Seattle, which led to a commission being set up by the government to judge the public reaction to that sale. Cortez made a presentation to the commission, and interestingly, one of the outcomes, one of the 13 provincial requirements that came out of that process was that Weyerhaeuser must continue to negotiate in good faith with Cortez Island. Talk about a little place with a big voice, I would say. Cortez delegation also met with the provincial cabinet in late 1999, focusing on the efforts to acquire the Mac and Blow lands. And we came within a hair's breadth of success. Mike Moore will talk a bit more about that and the dynamics that brought that to a, a quietude quiet time for a few years, but in 2008, a new chief and council at, at the Clues Band revived our initiative and a team was assembled to negotiate with the Ministry of Forests, and Cortez finally received a community forest agreement in 2013, and we're coming up on the 10th anniversary of a successful partnership, as far as I'm concerned. Now, yeah, yes, sir. The motivation for tonight's meeting comes from the fact that the lands which Mosaic now manages for island timberlands and is proposing to begin harvesting after this summer are part of the M&B purchases way back in the 1950s. Nine of the M&B private land parcels on Cortez which were transferred to Weyerhaeuser in 1999 were sold in 2005 with the balance of 1,085 hectares, if I'm correct on that figure, uh, being sold to Brascan an investment income trust company from Toronto. They turned around and put those lands on Cortez and elsewhere the privately held forest lands under a new legal entity by the name of Island Timberlands, which brings us full circle to where we're at tonight. Mosaic is suggesting in their proposal that they are mimicking other forest activities on Cortez, which I presume 
suggests the community forest operations. They're proposing scattered small cut blocks, as we have mostly been doing in the community forest. But the big difference is that the community forest has, on average, been annually harvesting around 3,000 cubic meters on our land base of 3,000 hectares, or the equivalent of one cubic meter per hectare per year. Whereas Mosaic is proposing to harvest six to 8,000 cubic meters per year over the next three years on 1,085 hectares, which is about six to eight times faster than the Cortez Community Forest is operating. So if they really want to emulate what the community forest is doing, they would want to be cutting somewhere around 1,100 cubic meters a year rather than six to 8,000. So a substantial difference. Getting a lot of time, too much time? Five minutes, okay, I'll, I'll, that'll, or six, eh? <laughs> I'm just bubbling over with stuff to say. <laughs> anyway, when Raven Lumber came to Cortez in, in 1979 and started logging, I had a growing interest and a concern around the question of just what is a sustainable forest management? How can we define it in an understandable way for the average layperson and a way to make it measurable? And how can we achieve it? I'm not a scientist. I never was trained as a scientist. When I look at that question of sustainability, I would describe myself as a generalist, tending to stand back and look broadly at how the natural systems in our world function, rather than creating modeling to suggest an outcome that we would like to achieve, or studying the narrow details that scientists often find themselves focusing on. The old growth on Cortez, as you know, is virtually gone. The rest of our forests are mainly in second growth timber now and occasional parcels of third growth. As I see it, each harvest removes roughly 50% of the nutrients in the form of the logs that go out from the forest landscape that it took to grow those trees. Every short, short rotation, harvest cumulatively reduces the nutrients available in that landscape to grow new trees. I'm seriously concerned about the nutrient drawdown in our forest landscapes throughout BC and the world actually, as I believe that having enough nutrients available is the fundamental requirement for sustainability of any living system. Over the years, I found a number of studies of consumption dynamics in natural systems and they reflect a consistently narrow range of 15 to 20% of the annual incremental growth of the population of whatever is being consumed that's taken by the ones that consume them. And that has been proven in those studies to be sustainable by the organisms they're studying about, to be sustainable over many thousands, if not millions of years, which are a pretty good indicator for us to use as a guideline for what we ought to be doing if we're really serious about sustainably managing our forests, I consider. I'm not advocating for no harvesting. As you know, I've, I've, ever since the community forest was proposed and so on, I've been staunchly supporting a modest harvest on the island and doing a lot more with the wood to get the best and full value out of it before it leaves the island as possible. But I am advocating for a transition to a much reduced cut throughout the province, I would say, but certainly on Cortez, that allows the forest ecosystem to age and replace the nutrients that it needs to keep itself healthy. Thank you. Do you want me to introduce you or do you just want to go for it? I can do it. Good. 
This is Mike Moore, and he doesn't need any introduction. Storyteller, longtime islander, he's just going to go for it. Yes. Cortez Island, you have a long, imaginative, and passionate history of activism on this island when it comes to forestry matters. And that's what I'm gonna to talk to you a little bit about tonight. I'm gonna to pick up the story in, nine, in the 1980s um, when, as Bruce said, there was a, a feeling of unease on the island because Raven Lumber had just cut 223 acres of land on South Point Road, what is now South Point Road. And, am I okay? I'm a, I'm a mic anyway. <laughs> okay, 223 acres on South Point, and Mac and Blow was talking about uh, logging 60,000 cubic meters off their Squirrel Cove lands over the course of a few years. That did cause a lot of unease in the community. It came to a head when Mac and Blow did a couple years of logging, and then they came back, as Bruce mentioned, and the Cortez Islanders set up a two-day blockade. See if you recognize anybody in these pictures. The blockade was successful. Colin Gableman, the longtime MLA for the North Island, mediated an agreement that Mac and Blow should go away until they come back with suitable plans that are suitable or acceptable to the community. And they did that, and they came back uh, three years later and started working on little lens cuts and things like that. The Cortez community realized that in order to stop industrial logging on the island, the islanders needed to have a better understanding of the ecosystems of the island and alternative logging methods. In the early 1990s, Herb Hammond introduced us to his ecosystem-based model for forest management. This led to the development of sensitive ecosystem mapping on the island, large tree inventories, and ground truthing of watersheds and riparian areas. The community's knowledge base about our forest was growing. In 1997, Mike Jenks bought the private Twin Islands and proceeded to log them. This caused great concern amongst the Cortez community and a flotilla of boats went out to protest. It was a gut-wrenching Christmas to listen to the chainsaws and the crash of giant trees falling on the, this beautiful island with its royal history. Fortunately, Mike Jenks sold Twin Islands to a local holding company which put restrictive covenants on the islands before selling them on to a private buyer. But then Mike Jenks turned his attention to Cortez Island buying two parcels of land from Mac and Blow, one of them being the Seaford Y, and he proceeded to clear-cut them. These actions resulted in the formation of the Cortez Eco-Forestry Society. This was a legal society with more ability to advocate for the island. Work began in earnest on how to get the crown land and private forest lands under community control. And then, um, as Bruce mentioned, in 1999, Cortez Ecoforestry Society and Clahoos signed a memorandum of understanding to work together to create an ecologically managed community forest, which included two-thirds of the island land base. Again, very familiar faces in there. 
The Cortez Ecoforestry Society began negotiations by the private forest lands from Malcolm Blow, while Clues started negotiating an exchange of private land for Crown land as an interim treaty measure. Then, in 2004, Weyerhaeuser sold Bartholomew Road cut blocks to Mike Reister. As the trees were falling, the loggers attempted to get approval to subdivide the properties, but the Cortez community pushed back hard against his log and talk tactics. Through public meetings and a petition, the community was able to block the rezoning of these lands so that they would stay zoned as forestry and not be subdivided into residential lots. Even though there is an appetite for low-cost housing on this island, the idea that a logger could hold the community hostage and force the subdivision for high profits for himself and environmental loss to the island was not acceptable to us. And this set a precedence that holds to this day, and it uh, played out in the gorge as well. Then, in the summer of 2008, Island Timberlands informed the Cortez community that they were going to start industrial logging again. It was time for the kids and the protest signs to come out again. This started another flurry of community action that over the course of the next four years produced the sensitive ecosystem inventory mapping and found that there was ecologically sensitive areas that were at risk from logging. We invigorated the push for the community forest application by Clahoos and Cortez Ecoforestry Society. The community organization Wild Stance was formed to head up the activism. The Forest Trust for the Children of Cortez was established. A petition of 6,500 signatures was delivered to six Brookfield head offices worldwide, including in Hong Kong, London, and Sydney. And that's Zoe getting ready to go to Toronto, where there were flash mobs in the streets of Toronto. And MTV did the Buried Life production and Daniel Pierce started ramshackle, came over here with Ramshackle Productions and did the Heartwood series. There was a lot of media that happened around here. And, and all the same time, ongoing negotiations with IT were carried out for the Children's Forest, Welltown Commons, and sensitive areas of the Delight Lake and Basil Creek wetlands. On November 27, 2012, Island Timberland crews started to log at, or Start, uh, arrived to start logging at Basil Creek, but they were met there by the community group Island Stance. Media outreach and communications went into hyperdrive. The press arrived on the island, interviews were given, a colorful flotilla symbolically blocked the entrance to the gorge, which, which is access to the log dump, and, and the blockade at Basil Creek prevented the loggers from going to work cutting trees. IT went away, they labeled Cortez as socially inoperable. And things have remained pretty quiet ever since. Yeah. Yeah, we had, uh, we had Forest Fest up on the hill there. And we have activists that have grown up with this. They, 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 they labeled us socially inoperable. Things have remained pretty quiet ever since. Uh, we've had negotiations regarding the children's forest and the successful purchase of the Welltown Commons. And then in 2013, a community forest tenure was finally granted to the Cortez Forestry General Partnership. We finally had some measure of control over our crown lands. 
And things remain quiet until this January when Mosaic announced that they will begin road building and logging on their private lands. So many different companies have come and gone, all wanting to log our island. But many of the faces have stayed the same since that first blockade 32 years ago to the day. In 1990, today, the day before Earth Day. So the same faces. And now those faces are passed on in the faces of our children that are coming up to help. This is our home. This is our history. I'm going to go back to Kai's... I'm going to go back to Kai's t-shirt now. It says that Island Stance is committed to preventing island timberlands industrial logging on Cortez Island, seeking permanent protection from sensitive, for sensitive ecosystems, promoting sustainable ecosystem-based forestry. We've been asking for this for a very long time. It also says we will act with focus, determination, humor, and goodwill. Our behavior will remain Peaceful and respectful to people, other beings, and others' property, we will seek common ground, consider all points of view, and then act with benevolent accountability. Still on the Island Stance t-shirt. Still good words to talk, think about. Thank you. This is one of those Cortez moments where in the initial planning, we were so tight and polished with the timing, and now it's just working on island time. So we're doing the best we can to keep this to an hour. Good luck with that. Uh, and I would like to now, am I on? Yes, I'm on, I'm on. I would like to now introduce Gemma and Dan, who are going to present the significance of the biodiversity in this area, why Cortez is so special. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Thank you for being here to celebrate our forests all together this evening. Dan and I have been asked to do a short presentation on the ecological significance of Cortez. And without further ado, we will introduce ourselves to start us off. I'm Gemma. For those of you who don't know me, uh, my background is in music. I'm about to go into my master's degree in ethnomusicology, studying intergenerational music making, specifically in island communities. Um, I grew up on Cortez, hence my interest in islands. And I am really passionate about this project and this night tonight. I feel like the forests on Cortez have really shaped who I am today. Over to you. And I'm Dan. I am not from Cortez, but I have lived here now full time for a year and a half and have been coming and going for the past six years. And I'm a botanist by training, and I generally study mosses and liverworts, which are those tiny plants you see everywhere and know nothing about. <laughs> um, and I'm obsessed with them, and I'm obsessed with this place because it is just truly magical. The ecosystems are incredible, and I'm really happy to share a little bit about why this place is so special with you. Um, I'm also going to be going into my master's degree, but studying mosses in tropical montane cloud forests which also really excite me, but not quite as much as this place. So <laughs> let's carry on. 
So first, I think in order to really capture the ecological significance of Cortez, we need to talk about the geographic position. Um, the province of BC is divided into these zones called biogeoclimatic zones, and they're characterized by certain vegetation communities and then also the kind of climate of these different parts of BC. And Cortez is located at a transition zone between the warmer and drier coastal Douglas fir zone and the cooler and wetter coastal western hemlock zone. And we're actually in this very specific subzone called the Western Hemlock Zurich Maritime One. It's a mouthful, but it's kind of this warmest, the warmest, driest part of that Western Hemlock, and then also at that coolest, wettest part of the Douglas fir. And you can see on the map that dark green area, that's that um, coastal Western Hemlock, and then the Douglas fir is just coming up there by Hernando. And so Cortez is really important because we have some of the largest tracts of undeveloped land within this subzone. And it's important to note too that the old forests in this Zurich Maritime One subzone are really underrepresented in the protected land base. Mike, you said it so beautifully last night. Do you want to pop up and chime in on why Cortez is so magical? You know I would. <laughs> <laughs> we live in a really special place. There's not an island like it around. We live at the north end of the Salish Sea, and to the west of us, Vancouver Island, the mountains on Vancouver Island stop moisture coming in from the Pacific. And so we live on the southern part of Cortez in a rain shadow. But on the north end, the north end of Cortez Island is subject to the Butte winds that come smashing out of Butte Inlet in the wintertime when Arctic high pressure builds over the interior. To the east of us, we have the coast range and desolation sound where water temperatures can get up into the mid-20s. And to the west of us, we have the tidal rapid areas where cold marine water coming in off the Pacific Ocean gets channeled through tiny uh, channels and can reach... Uh, uh, rates of up to 12 or 14 knots, and it's cold marine water. So this really is an area of transition. And like I say, there isn't another uh, place with such ecological diversity in such a small area. Thanks, Mike. We couldn't have said it so poetically. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so all these factors combine and make Cortez a really exciting hotspot for biodiversity. Another reason Cortez is really important is that we have sensitive ecosystems here. And so sensitive ecosystems are these rare, fragile, or at-risk ecosystems that are generally um, fragments or remnants of a larger contiguous ecosystem that has been you know, fragmented by uh, human activities, or maybe it was just rare on the landscape in the first place. And back in the 90s, there was an inventory done by the BC government of Cortez and Powell River area. And they actually found that Cortez Island has all of the important sensitive ecosystem types, including um, old forests, you know, uh, what are some of the other ones? Bluffs, <laughs> Bluffs <laughs> right. wetlands, riparian zones. Um, it's a really important place. And as you can see on the map there, we're kind of zoomed right up to Cortez, but all those different colors represent different sensitive ecosystems. So you can see that we have a really high habitat diversity on the island here, and with that comes a really high biodiversity too. And speaking of biodiversity and species diversity, segue, 
There's been a huge community effort on Cortez to document all the species that we have here. There's been lots of regularly organized bio blitzes, walks through the community forest, as well as uh, the Christmas bird count, and also using citizen science apps like iNaturalist. And if you want to get involved in documenting all the species we have on Cortez, uh, Dan is a good person to talk to to get involved with iNaturalist. It's an app that you can go out and take pictures, and it kind of IDs it for you, and you can get connected with experts in the field that are far away who will ID them for you online, which is both cool and really useful for us to document the species we have on Cortez. Yeah, and so far we've identified about 2,000 species from five different kingdoms of life, and this is just barely scratching the surface of what's out there on this island. You know, we've just started to look into things like mosses, really, and lichens, and insects, and microorganisms, and these numbers are going to go way up. Like last summer alone, I found 60 new moss species undocumented to this island. And yeah, so we really need that motion to go out there and document these things right now. A species baseline is super critical, especially with proposed logging. We really want to know what is all here and what's at risk on the island too. And if you want to learn more about this, we have uh, Cortez Wild, which is based at the Linnea Farm. It's our natural history hub here on Cortez. And they have an exhibit and so much information about all the biodiversity here. And they're about to publish their... Uh, master species list. So go ahead and check that out as well. Okay, so why should we actually care about biodiversity in the first place? So I'm going to just talk a little bit about some ecological theory that grounds this, and there's this idea of redundancy in ecology. Um, and how this works is that high biodiversity equates to ecosystem stability. And if you look at this graph on the top right there, you see those kind of little hills where they're all overlapping, each one of those hills would be a species and their kind of overlap or the width of them would be their ecological role or function, or you could call it their ecological niche in an ecosystem. And so in an ecosystem where you have really high biodiversity, you have a lot of species where their ecological niches and their roles are overlapping and there's redundancy. So if you lose a species, another one could come in and fill that role. But if we don't have high biodiversity, we're at risk of losing our ecosystem stability if we lose a species because we could lose its functional role in the ecosystem. So it's really important that we have that and you could lose the whole stability of the ecosystem. And also considering that species uh, lost species is a predicted outcome of the climate crisis, it's especially important that we keep our biodiversity up on Cortez so that our ecosystems can remain stable and adaptable through the changing climate as well. And we know that in this part of the world, mature forests, old growth forests are the most biodiverse forest ecosystems, and we need to maintain those. So <laughs> species at risk on Cortez. Thanks. <laughs> on Cortez, we actually have species at risk too. Talking about species lost, there are species here that you know, we're at risk of losing. Um, the coastal Douglas fir zone actually has the most at-risk plant species. That map that you see up there, you can see a little sliver of yellow. That's the highest density um, at-risk plant species part of this province. And we're right there at the cusp of that zone. Um, and yeah. the sensitive ecosystems on Cortez are especially important because they are the most dense locations within that zone for species at risk as well. And we have tons of sensitive ecosystems, as we said before, on Cortez. And so we've only, well, we've observed 33 species at risk on Cortez so far, and those are just animals. We haven't even started looking at plants or fungi 
or you know, um, microorganisms, lichens. And this example here is a lichen I found last summer. It's a provincially blue-listed species, a new record for Cortez. And we're just going to find more and more and more of these as we get experts out in the field. And so to bring this up to a global scale, we're going to hear a little bit more about carbon sequestration today. But a, a reason Cortez is global, globally significant is that we have this temperate rainforest. And these temperate forests, there's a slower rate of decomposition because of this cooler climate, which means that we have a lot of carbon locked up in our soils. And in the rainforest where we are, we grow trees like nowhere else. We grow massive trees that can hold lots of carbon for a long period of time. And these old trees, they sequester carbon faster than any other tree. And because the, there's not much old growth remaining on Cortez, it's really important, vital, that we protect our mature second growth trees as well because they are sequestering the second most carbon and they are also our current and future old growth on the island. Especially in this subzone, right? This Zurich Maritime one where these old forests are underrepresented in the protected land base. I think that brings us to the end of our presentation, but I just wanted to say that both Dan and I are really committed to the health of the Cortez community and we feel that the forests here are an integral part of that Cortez community that we know and love so well. And um, and yeah, I just, I feel like, well, maybe we'll leave you with this quote. <laughs> this, is, this is Edward Abbey. So wilderness is not a luxury, but it's a necessity of the human spirit and as vital to our lives as water and good bread. A civilization which destroys what little remains of the wild is cutting itself off from its origins and betraying the principle of civilization itself. Thank you. I doubt very much if Kai Harvey needs an introduction, so I'll just say this is the t-shirt person. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Can you hear me? I'm always a little bit scared of speaking into mics, to be honest. Um, but first of all, thank you all so much for coming tonight. It is um, so nice to see everyone's faces and be in a room together because it has been a long time. Um, I grew up here on this island, so I definitely know most of the people in this room. Um, so, but for those of you who don't know me, I, my name is Kai Harvey, and today I am pleased to present Dr. Suzanne Samard's Mother Tree Project, um, and then also, our own community ground truthing and mat mapping Mother Tree Project, which has been laying um, the groundwork for the Mother Tree Project to come to Cortez for the last three years. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> Um, all right, so mother trees are large trees within a forest that act as a centralized hub supporting mycorrhizal fungi that facilitate connection, communication, and resource exchange among trees. The UBC Mother Tree Project started in 2015. It is a large scientific field-based experiment that builds on prior research with the central objective of identifying sustainable harvesting and regeneration treatments that will maintain forest resilience as the climate changes in British Columbia. 
This graphic here um, is from one of the foundational papers that the Mother Tree Project is built on, and it visually represents the interconnected nature of our forests. Um, I really like this graphic because after I saw it for the first time, when I went out into the forest, I started visualizing it um, in, in the ground, interconnecting all the trees. Um, so the dark green circles are the mother trees, the larger trees which have the most connections. Um, and so what is the role of mother trees and what have they found in this project so far? So mycorrhizal networks link trees underground. These networks deliver carbon, phosphorus, water, nit and nitrogen between trees. The biggest, oldest trees in the network are the most highly linked and mother trees can be connected to hundreds of saplings. Um, and one really interesting finding of the Mother Tree Project is that mother trees actually prioritize giving the most nutrients to their own kin, so their own direct relations, um, which is very interesting. Um, and then the mycorrhizal networks regenerate trees, so leaving these big mother trees is a crucial step in maintaining the ability for forests to regenerate. So recently, Dr. Suzanne Samard and her team of researchers have expressed interest in including Cortez Island in the Mother Tree Project. This partnership is in the initial stages right now, but it would be a fantastic opportunity for their research to include another biogeoclimatic zone and also um, to include an island field site and more coastal field sites. For our community, it's an incredible opportunity to learn about the interconnected nature of our forests um, and also about the nutrient transfers taking place. And it will also make us more resilient in the changing climates. Over the last three years, a team of local citizen scientists have been laying the foundational work for the Mother Tree Project to come to Cortez. We have been mapping mother trees of the island. The ground truthing has been extensive with hundreds of hours of volunteer work. I only recently joined this effort, but there is a group of very dedicated community members working to map all of the largest trees on the island. So when we're in the field, we're looking for old growth characteristics, which include big bark scales and deep furrows, um, as well as burn marks um, and trees that are big for their stand. We measure the trees at chest height, um, and most of the mother trees are over one meter in diameter. Um, and here are some of the amazing community members that have been participating in this mapping. So what have we noticed in this research so far? Most of the mother trees on Cortez Island are scattered in small groups throughout the forest. There is not much western red cedar. There are a few there are a few groves of mother trees on Cortez Island. The old growth management areas of Cortez are dry and rocky bluffs, which make these very vulnerable in changing climates. And the mosaic uh, island timberlands lands have groves of mother trees. And the only grove we found that is over one hectare is on island timberlands lands. And most of the oldest stands of trees um, that we have ground truthed are within the three year draft logging proposal. Um, so the first logging, we've had a history of logging already, but the first logging on Cortez happened around 150 years ago, and since then, almost all of our old growth trees have been cut down. We have very few old growth pockets, but rather scattered trees which were marked leave in the initial forestry. The oldest trees we have now are 140 to 150 years old other than the old growth leaf trees. Knowing this, we must redefine what old growth is to include these 140 plus year old trees. To get into the details of the um, mapping that we have been doing, this is the Delight Lake watershed. 
Um, you can see the proposed cut blocks in pink and purple. And these cut blocks um, are estimated based on the publicly released information and mapping by Mosaic. The orange represents the largest known stand of mother trees on Cortez, which is the one that is over a hectare. Um, and that, that orange area is scheduled to be cut this fall. The Delight Lake watershed is nearby Blue Jay Lake. Mm -hmm. It's a really beautiful area. Um, I lost my place. Oh yeah, <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, it is clear that the proposed draft logging plans are not planned sustainably, but rather looking to take the oldest and biggest trees that our island has in the next three years. And I can confidently say that by my own eyes and ground truthing the cut blocks themselves. And I would encourage everyone else to do the same because it really is eye-opening. Um, we don't have time to cover all of the proposed cut blocks, but the trend is the same where Mosaic's plans include some of the largest mother trees um, uh, that we have on Cortez. So these are two of the stunning mother trees in the Delight Lake watershed and within um, the proposed cut block. These trees serve so many ecosystem services, it's hard to count them all. They keep safe and intact massive amounts of carbon held in the soil. They sequester exponentially more carbon than all other trees. They nourish the young trees and regenerate the whole forest. They act as scaffolding for biodiversity, providing habitat for lichens to fix nitrogen and so many other organisms. They connect the forest through fungal networks, which can be transfer nutrients and communicate through. They hold successful gene variety. They absorb water throughout the year and release it in the summer. They provide temperature regulation, keep the forest cool and moist and reducing fire hazard. They are the nuclei of the forest where genetic and climate information is held. And even when they are dying, they provide wildlife homes, hold moisture and feed surrounding trees. And when they, di when they die naturally, their biomass remains in the forest, feeding the next generation. These are our island's mother trees. These trees are worth more standing. They are invaluable standing. And this is why our open letter to Mosaic seeks to protect trees that are older than 140 years old. The fact that we even have to fight for these trees or have this presentation right now is devastating. At this precarious time in history when our climate is rapidly destabilizing and people my age fear for our futures, I ask myself these questions. What kind of a world and what kind of a planet, or what kind of an island, world and planet, <laughs> and island are we leaving for the next generation? And can we prioritize saving our planet over lining our pockets? Thank you. I'm Sonia, if you don't know me. Um, of course, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. Like many of you, I uh, have back, my uh, family is forestry. <laughs> my dad is a logger, and um, he taught me to love the forest. So I think that's important that people don't make assumptions about types. He took me hiking, mainly in the Shone Lake area of Sayward and Kelsey Bay. I don't know if you know that area, but... Yeah, what an impact in the 70s as a little child to get to hike in some of those places. So moving here, I continued to love the forests and happened to come here right before the 1990, uh, in 89. So right when the trees were falling, more trees were falling. 
And that house also had a real impact that was very visual, <laughs> especially to Basil Creek. I want to take a moment to, to, to just express how, how amazing it is to be part of that, but also to acknowledge that these trees wouldn't be standing if Clahoos First Nation had not been so strong and maintains being that strong to protect the forests of Cortez and their other territories. I, I feel really lucky to be able to call this home, and I, I see it as a home in a forest community, not private land. And I feel honored that I was welcomed to be, to be able to live <laughs> in the lands in Squirrel Cove, right beside my neighbors, the Clahoos First Nation. Okay, go for it. <laughs> Kai covered a lot of this, uh, you know, so I'm just going to carry on. I've been part of the ground truthing. Um, just want to maintain that this ground truth thing is not something new, of course. Cortez has been doing this. People have been working and acknowledging when they're mushroom picking or whatever they're doing. They've been looking at the forests and taking note. Now we're just going to be able to use a little bit more technique with GPS and pin some of this stuff. What you're looking at right there is an example of a mature second growth and how amazing it is to see, I can't see the slide, it's annoying. I'll look at it there. To see, um, for example, cedar and fir growing entirely together. That's not, that's a, that's a group of two younger ones right in front of two on the right-hand slide there. It's pretty cool. Yeah, you can't do that when you're a tree planter. I was a tree planter. They wouldn't let you put two trees in the same hole. Nature does it, does it all the time, does it really well. I call it, so kin, right? It's more than mother trees. So more of this is becoming rare as, as the, um, sorry, I'm not used to public speaking at all. It's, it's becoming, we're losing our second growth. It's not just our old growth. And if you have noticed Vancouver Island, it's, it's not how it was. And these naturally regenerating forests are super important. They will be our future forests. There's a little bit of a history here in our mapping. It's, this is mapping from the 90s. Um, it's done in response to the lack of good data and the need for ecosystem mapping. David Shipway could speak a lot to this. He was very involved. And Clahoos, so the Clues and First Nation, um, the Cortez community, worked with Silva Forest Foundation and created these maps. Uh, so you'll see the protected landscape network mapping that was sort of a result of the combination of all that work that happened in the 90s. So what are we doing now? We're using maps like this, plus the sensitive ecosystem mapping that was developed through government data and the vegetation resource and the forest cover maps. And we're just taking note as we ground truth different areas of Cortez. Ground truthing means maps created with data provided by direct observation and measurement rather than aerial photos and computer models. So this is a map of the Delight area. And you'll see the, the yellow lines represent polygons that are outlined for the forest cover data. Um, for those of you who actually, sorry, if you don't know what you're looking at, you're looking at the lower Delight. Um, 
the road to Blue Jay is to your left there. Do you know where you're at? Okay. Yeah, so this is, this is also some areas that are planned for logging by Mosaic, and there definitely are some bigger trees, some old trees, some amazing mature trees. So there you have it. <laughs> so just to explain what the pins are, the green, the green pins, the green pins represent Doug's fir, the yellow pins are cedar, the purple ones are spruce. The red ones represent groves of, of perhaps, it's not, identif we identify them in the field, but we'd, I didn't use another color. So we have you know, more than five. What's really significant in the Delight area is beautiful, sta beautiful stands of cedar that aren't necessarily over 200 years old, but they're 160 to 180. They're, it's a very wet area. It is, um, some of them are just substantial and amazing. Worth protecting, for sure. Here's the upper delight area. I'm sure a lot of you have walked in here. I think a real important thing to note here is where the roads may go. This is crucial, besides just the logging. Roads are so devastating to watersheds that hold the water. They hold the water for us. They also hold the water. Those riparian areas hold the water for all the other species. It's not just about us. It's super important that we think about where those roads go. It's without, I can't really point to where they're gonna go, but we have a good idea from the information that Mosaic shared. Uh, one of the great things about their plans compared to last time is if you notice the, where the question mark is there, the, one of the roads prior and when IT was coming was gonna cross right over that riparian area, which has got a huge beaver dam, it's a beautiful area. So it's good to see the roads not crossing there anymore. So how about we look at um, the land base through watersheds? Just to let you know, the, the purple line delineates the watershed. This is from the Forest Water Atlas for BC. It also has some question to it as we ground truth, and I'm sure as Mosaic will uh, have the lighter information, it's gonna improve some of these water courses but if you look at what we've tracked here, some of the creeks that are tracked in the mapping that's existing is really not in the right places. So we need to do a lot more ground truthing. That's the ground truthing we did, showing how the actual creek does run. The lighter blue line is the way it's mapped. And there's missing riparian areas, which you'll see the blue pins, uh, wetlands that are missing, little creeks that are missing, areas that are connecting, the yellow pins mean nothing, that's just an error. Sorry about that. This is, this is not mapping, this is just ground truthing with very, um, you know, on Google Earth, it's not, it's not fancy. The other things you're looking at are the sensitive ecosystem that you, people have explained to you early in the presentation. And those connecting corridors, they're super important. So just that you're thinking about remembering what a watershed is, there you go. So just to remember, or to set as an example here to see uh, where our property lines fit on a watershed, sort of is artificial, isn't it? Um, you'll see the orange line shows you where the community forest is outside of that area. It has a little piece of that delight watershed. The three piece, the, yeah. <laughs> 
I'm the cursor. Those three blocks coming down are mosaic lands and across to the right, that's, yeah, that's, that's Blue Jay. That's, they have a large percentage, as I said, of the Delight watershed. So it'll have a huge impact on the entire watershed. So just having a look at when we ground truth the creek, we're not just ground truthing the actual creek and exactly where it goes, but we're taking note of where the tributaries come in, um, where there's sloughs in the, sl in the edges of the bank, where a bridge is gone. So it is really great to just get out there and start recording um, you know, what, what's there, what you see, and what needs to be shared and learned. Here's the gorge area. This also is an area that's to the right there that is potential logging with mosaic. And you'll see here the creek also is not mapped where it, yeah. So the map, the, after truthing that creek, it actually goes down. We're calling it Little Hume because this is the Hume Creek watershed. So Cease, you might want to come and talk to these pictures. Oh, I could probably speak from right here. Uh, the photo on the right was taken in the, the light wetland about two weeks ago. <coughs> um, we were actually trying to capture cups of trout, which were jumping all over the pond. We got these little guys, which I didn't mind at all. It's, uh, <laughs> Yes. All right. Um, yeah. To me, this is this is magic. Um, this is my church. <laughs> okay. Um, if you ever get a chance to hold a handful of these little creatures, um, you'll be lucky, and you'll never forget it. Make sure your hands are clean and wet. And take your grandchildren. Um, they just need clean, cool water, lots of it. It has to be shaded, they've got to have food, and all of that happens when the water is flowing through a healthy forest. I didn't realize those were there. Okay, so um, on the right, you're looking at uh, two little fish in Basil Creek. So the larger one underneath is a cutthroat trout, and the little guy on top is a coho salmon fry. <clears throat> on the left is quite a large, beautiful cutthroat trout. Um, and that was caught just last fall in Hume Creek, so flowing into the gorge. Uh, there were so many fish cutthroat that size in that trap, they just spilled out of the trap, and they were everywhere. It was lovely. I don't know of a more beautiful sight <laughs> than that. Thank you.
This, this picture is uh, of one of the little wetlands that actually feeds that little Hume Creek down through the gorge. It's an amazing, beautiful well, and I'm sure many of you have walked near it. The quote is from Anthony Britneff. I don't know if many of you know him, a professional forester who worked for the BC Forest Service for 40 years, holding a senior position in inventory, civil culture, and forest health. There were other quotes, sorry, that I just froze that he said in the present, that I quoted in the presentation. Sean, can you stand the mic, please? Yeah, sorry. So this is his quote. He's a big advocate that we need to keep ground truthing, even as we're going to have LIDAR and a little bit better um, information. We're going to always have to be on the ground. That's the fun part. It's beautiful out there. Sorry that my presentation went crazy. I'm also not sure that uh, Lovna Harvey needs much of an introduction, but here she is. And the next presentation is about climate change. We're kind of getting in bigger and bigger circles here, us and the salmon fry. Oops, I just need my glasses. Thank you. Look, Sonia, you're not the only one that has things going crazy. I've got my glasses case attached to my, my glasses. <laughs> got it. Okay, I am honored to be here this evening. I would like to thank all of you for coming to celebrate our relationship to the forest. Um, as mentioned, my name is Lovna, and um, my family and I have lived on Cortez for the last 20 years. Kai, Tosh, and Asha are my children. We've raised our three kids here quite literally in the forest, and all of them have a deep care for the planet and a relationship with nature. Two of them have now settled on Cortez Island, and uh, with the possibility of a sustainable world to inhabit, there may be grandchildren. Um, this island, the land, the trees, the water, and the air are a part of us, embedded in the essence of who we are. I'm here today to discuss the link between current forestry practices and climate change and how the draft logging plans as presented by Mosaic would certainly push the climatic balance on our small rocky island. Each week we are seeing new and undeniable climate events, evidence that accelerated climate change is here right now. The two major sources of climate destabilizing CO2 are burning fossil fuels and how we treat the land, especially our forests. Let's talk about our forests and indirectly the draft logging plans as presented by Mosaic, which represent a business as usual approach. Meanwhile, there is nothing usual about the current climate catastrophe that is unfolding. Droughts are intensifying, our oceans are acidifying, floods are commonplace, and the West Antarctic and Greenland ice sheets are melting at an unprecedented rate. Scientists postulate that we are in the midst of a mass extinction. In BC, the wood harvested from our forest emits more CO2 than all our transportation and buildings combined. 
That is correct. Our, the wood harvested from our forests emits more CO2 than all our transportation and buildings combined. This adds up to around eight tons of CO2 per British Columbian each year which represents more than half of the average BC residents' CO2 emissions. We're told to get heat pumps, drive electric cars, and fly less, which are all important things to do, but forestry practices create half of our province's emissions. BC, BC's forests used to pull all this harvested wood CO2 back out of the air each year through new growth, and this greatly reduced the climate damage from logging, but climate shifts have started killing our forests too by increasing wildfires, drought, insects, and storm damages. Now, BC's forest has switched to emitting CO2 as it struggles under the combined pressures of business-as-usual logging levels and increasing climate damages. Over the last decade, BC's forests and the wood harvested from it have combined to add nearly a billion tons of CO2 into the atmosphere. That's far more than from all the fossil fuels burned in BC over that time. To reduce the climate threat and to give our struggling forests a break, we need to let more of our mature forests grow. Cortez is happy to be the guinea pigs of forest conservation. Living on an island, we are acutely aware of the threat of wildfire and are happy to keep our trees and the moisture, stored carbon, healthy ecosystems, and intact watersheds. In fact, our mature forests in Western BC are one of our best allies in the climate fight. They are global champions at storing carbon in their huge trees and deep, humus-rich soils. The older we let our trees grow, the more carbon they lock, lock away. Logging turns much of their stored carbon in both trees and soil into CO2 in the atmosphere, which is the primary driver of climate change. Forests are also critical tools in adapting to climate change. They cool the area, keep surface water cooler, store water in their soils. How might logging operations on Cortez impact our population, you may ask? Climate changes are a rising threat to our families, community, and the ecosystems we love and depend on. Increasing wildfires and add fear and toxic smoke to our summers. Air quality is a major health issue for many British Columbians. We saw a record number of people forced to evacuate their homes in the entire community of Lytton destroyed by fire. Did you know that wildfires are up 10 times in BC in the last two decades? More frequent droughts are killing our forest and drying up our water sources and streams, harming our beleaguered salmon already struggling. Warming lakes are getting hit by increasing toxic algae blooms. Extreme weather events like the heat dome last summer and the atmospheric river in the fall resulting in flooding and landslides are killing and endangering people and our capacity to grow food. They are killing plants and wildlife like the creatures that were cooked in intertidal zones, millions of oysters dead, plus over a billion sea creatures which has an economic um, effect for communities like Cortez Island. 640,000 farm animals perished in the floods in the Lower Mainland. In a November 2021 article in the Globe and Mail entitled, We Can't Ignore the Role Deforestation Plays in Triggering Devastating Floods, 
Peter Quittenbrauer, a registered professional forester, writes, among their marvels, trees perform something called transpiration. They suck water from the ground, which transpires through their needles or leaves into the air. The U.S. Geological Survey notes that a large oak can transpire 150,000 liters of water a year. This water stays out of rivers and sewer pipes. Peter Wood, a PhD in forestry from the University of Toronto in February, wrote a report titled Intact Forest, Safe Communities, released by Sierra Club BC. Dr. Wood described how intact forests mitigate floods. They serve as giant sponges, absorbing, storing, then releasing water slowly, providing for year-round moisture, cool microclimates, and water purification. Warming and acidifying oceans are killing the shellfish and salmon that many of us rely on and harming many of the species that we love from sun stars to orcas. If we allow clear cuts in our watersheds, the temperatures of those waters rise, putting everything downstream at risk. Rising seas are eroding shorelines, beaches, and threatening our marine infrastructure. We see it at Smelt Bay and Manson's Lagoon. All of these climate damages cost billions of dollars, and we're currently passing that bill onto our future generations who will not be as well positioned to pay. In short, we are in a state of emergency. In the words of Greta Thunberg, adults keep saying we owe it to the young people to give them hope, but I don't want your hope. I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic. I want you to feel the fear I feel every day. And then I want you to act. I want you to act as if you would in crisis. I want you to act as if the house was on fire, because it is. All parents and concerned citizens want to pass along a world to our children and future generations that is healthy and safe as the one we inherited and got to grow up in. To quote Greta again, you say you love your children above all else and yet you are stealing their future in front of their eyes. The fuel-burning, logging path we are still on is handing off a dystopian mess to our precious future generations. We still have a shot at passing along a hopeful future, but we need to stop pouring CO2 onto the climate fire and give our forests the best shot they have at pulling more of it in and locking it safely away by allowing them to mature and stay standing. While Island Timberlands, now represented by Mosaic, may own the land due to archaic decisions made by a colonial government, respectfully, they certainly are not a part of the land. And the, the decisions they make are for a brief moment for monetary benefit to shareholders, in essence, just digits clicking in bank accounts in faraway places. If these draft logging plans were to go forward, this monetary gain would affect the delicate balance of life on our island, effectively holding us hostage to a set of values and beliefs we do not support or agree with, with possibly devastating impacts to our local ecosystem, watersheds, fish, wildlife, and us the fabric of our island. Thank you. I think that, wow, we did it. I'm, I'm quoting Lovna. Uh, <laughs>
as we come to the last of our presentations uh, and move into a more informal discussion part of the evening, I think we are returning also to the children. And I want to introduce Christine Robinson, who has uh, been a was a founder of the Children's Forest and, in fact, has been on that board for the last 12 years. So, Christine. <laughs> Hello. Um, wow. <laughs> um, that takes quite a feat to take uh, what Lovna was talking about and bring it back to here and bring it back to the children. And I'm going to do my very best to keep my feet on the ground and not break into tears. Um, as long as I don't look at any of the kids that I still call them my kids that are in the room right now. Um, so, um, so my name's Christine, and um, I've lived on Cortez for 32 years, raised our own family, and also raised 100, 150, 200 kids here on Cortez. Um, so... <laughs> And, and I wanted to say, to bring things back to some beautiful things that we have on Cortez. So today, uh, we released about 20,000 chum fry from the Clahoose Hatchery into Bezel Creek. And we had children there. We had Anna and Amber um, and Emma singing and drumming um, prayers of, of good wishes to the little fry. And while we were there, there was a beautiful flock of snow geese flying north overhead. So let's bring that back to, to those moments. Um, and uh, I'm going to try and read a very short summary of um, the children's forest, which seemed um, it would have been lacking not to say something about the children's forest. And so... I can't see because I have my contacts in, and when I put these on, I can't see. <laughs> so, so just just a little little uh, review here. So the idea for the children's forest germinated in 2009, when Island Timberlands announced their logging plans for Cortez, and as you've heard tonight, ground truthing was carried out to identify ecologically significant lands and five parcels located east to west from Blue Jay Lake to Carrington Lagoon were identified, totaling about 600 acres. These parcels contain provincially designated sensitive ecosystems, as you've heard tonight. They all are um, contained in the five parcels of the children's forest. So we have riparian, wetland, herbaceous, woodland, and old forest remnants. They are home to rare ecological communities and species at risk. These lands also provide a buffer for the northern wilds of Cortez and a safe wildlife passage for wolf, cougar, and bear. And we really do intend to hold the northern wilds as wild. So the Forest Trust for the Children of Cortez Island Society, which is a mouthful, is a BC registered society and also a registered charity with the Canadian Revenue Agency. And we have a vision to establish a legacy of protected forest on Cortez Island, to nurture relationships between children and nature, to acquire and protect the children's forest, and to educate and conduct research, 
And to this end, we have organized four bio-blitzes and one micro-blitz, and scientifically documented over 500 species of animal, plant, fungi, and protozoa. Hundreds and hundreds of walks, uh, camping. Um, we have um, really, in the past two, 12 years, the children, the families, and the people of Cortez Island have claimed ownership of this place with their hearts. In actuality, these parcels are still owned by Island Timberlands. Mosaic Forest Management has stated publicly that the children's forest parcels are not part of their proposed three-year harvest plans. And over the past couple of years, a negotiating team for each of the Children's Forest Society and Mosaic Forest Management have been working together towards purchase. This has been a respectful, professional relationship with countless, and I mean countless hours, of volunteer effort toward valuation and agreements. And we are hopeful that the successful purchase of the children's forest will lay the groundwork for acquisition of further Mosaic Island timberland parcels on Cortez. And this, we think, is a perfect segue into the beginning discussions on alternate options to harvest. Uh, and I, I am just going to say one more thing, and that is that all the presentations that happened tonight were volunteer-based. These are the people who hold this island in their heart and have put hours and hours and hours into whatever it is that their love and passion is. And that is our community. We step up when the need is there. And we have multi-generational, and we have those that have been here for many years, and those that are here recently. So it is a very remarkable community that we have both of humans and animal and plant and even non-human. So we have a four-minute video clip that should be ready. Is that right? Does, can you do it? Okay. So just another member of the Harvey family. <laughs> but this will get you swinging. This video clip is going to move us from this more formal part of the presentation to a more for informal discussion. And I'll speak to that in soon as we see Tosh Harvey. My name's Tosh, and I've lived on Cortez Island for 11 years. I homeschool, and I like it because I learn about what I want to learn. I learn about like farming and like how to live on the land and what mushrooms are edible and like the, the stuff that really matters, if you know what I mean. And like some people invest the money in banks, but like I'm investing my time into the land because the land isn't going anywhere. It's sturdy and strong and stuff. And like, I know it's not gonna collapse underneath of me.
Living and growing up in the forest has really, like, just made me, like, feel more connected. In the forest, there's, like, so much life. Like, you go to the city and you say, oh, there's so much life, there's so many people. But in the forest, there's thousands and thousands of trees, and every tree is alive, and then every tree is a squirrel, and on every branch is a board, and, like, so many animals, like... Pretty much, like, the forest is the most, like, alive place. And, like, I want to live this life because it's, like, the right life. It's, like, what we've been living for millions of years. It makes me feel really bad that people could think about coming here and logging, like, the forest that everyone here, like, lives off of. And it's just for money, and they're sending it away to a faraway country. If we're gonna cut down the forest, it's like born in my like our library. I don't know how to read. I have dyslexia, so like the forest is my library, and it's like where I learn things, and it's where a lot of people learn things. We clear land. We use wood. I don't think it's bad to use logging because we need wood to warm our house in the winter, or we would be cold. But. We also, if we had this land, I know that we could probably make it walk because we have trails, so we could go, like, oh, this tree needs to come down, we could cut it down, and then we could use the wood. And if we use the wood, then it would be more money into the community and money gets passed around. I, like, totally don't want it to be cut down, but one of the things that I kind of feel happy with is that it's not going to be cut down because I know that I'm going to do everything in my capability to stop it so it's not going to happen because I'm not going to let it happen. And I know that the community is not going to let it happen. And I know, I know that the community is super tight. This fall, my mom and my dad both got in a car accident and they were really hot and they couldn't do a bunch of stuff. And the community bring them food and made sure that they were fine. I know when we want to do something, we are invincible because we have determination and we have love. The people there, they're doing it for money and we're doing it for like our forest. We're like doing it for something. Yeah, it's pretty good to know that, if you know what I mean, that they're not gonna win. Because we actually, we have something to fight for. Wow. Uh, I want us to shift gear for a moment and just say a few things about logistics. You've been an amazing audience. Thank you so much. You really have. Uh, and uh, Christine's absolutely right. Hours and hours of folks, we don't represent anything. We're not designated by anybody. Nobody picked us out and assigned us this task. Just a whole bunch of people kept getting together after the first uh, Zoom meeting we had with Mosaic, I believe in January. And I want to take this moment to both express our appreciation and to introduce two members of the Mosaic team who are here this evening with us. And that would be Molly Hudson. There she is. <laughs> and Colin Kozman. And They've come uh, certainly because they are conducting forest walks tomorrow, and 
certainly said yes to this invitation to come overnight and to stay and to be with us and to learn our history. And in fact, for many of us to kind of be reminded of this remarkable journey we have been on in this place. So having said that, uh, Noba Anderson, our regional director, is going to uh, facilitate, convene, questions and discussion, and a couple of technical things, but before I mention those, I want you to just do something for me. I want you to put your feet on the floor, uncross your legs, close your eyes, and think of a place in the forest that you love. Just a place you go. And I want you to notice that probably the first thing you do is you become quiet and you listen. And I ask that we bring that same listening to each other this evening as we share our views and we ask questions, that we listen. Open your eyes and look to your left and your right. See who's next to you. Smile. It's hard with a mask on, but do it anyway. Just like the mother tree in the connections, just like the microsial pathways between all the other than human life in the forest, we are connected. We are connected to each other. We are connected with our interests and our energy. Look for a moment again to the person who's on your right. Just notice them. <laughs> That person has the energy to carry forward your action. That, look to your left. Look to your left. <laughs> ah, but that person has the energy to support your action. So you each have that for each other. You can carry forward. You can act and you can support. That's what we ask for from this evening. There will be, I anticipate, many more evenings like this. Just a note that Mosaic, in fact, is planning to come for a community meeting. They are hosting, I believe, on May 17th. You'll hear lots more about that. I'm quite sure, knowing Cortez, this will not be the last time we gather. So as a beginning, I introduce Nova Anderson, who's going to talk about options. When, if you have a question, I can either carry this microphone to you, or you can come up to it. The reason for that is that we, are, we have been live streaming and recording this experience. The live streaming will keep going so people in the audience, in the, in the ether, uh, can continue to participate. From this point on, though, we are no longer recording the session, so you don't need to feel awkward about being up here in public. Okay, Oba. So there's 100 people in the room, or there were. A few have left, I see. Um, Mark, can I ask how many people joined us remotely? 35. That's, that's pretty remarkable for these times. Thank you. Thank you all for being here. 
Um, I just want to pick up some of the words at the very beginning by Kristen about bones of our ancestors. And um, one of the profound differences between the settler peoples and the First Nations here is indeed that most of us are not buried on the bones of our ancestors. And as of just a few months ago, I do live on the bones of my ancestors, and I have every intention that my child will as well. And that is what this community is about, is building this intergenerational commitment to place and memory of place. And so when I had the privilege of connecting with Colin and Molly uh, a year or more even ago now, and having early discussions with them about their intentions to uh, re-engage here on Cortez, um, they made it known and it became clear that they didn't have a lot of institutional memory. That when Island Timberlands and uh, Timber West sort of merged, if you will, in an informal way for one forward front of mosaic. It was really the Timber West side of the people that came and the island Timberlands people who were with us a decade ago and, and aren't really there anymore. And so it seemed actually a welcome to show them and introduce them to this place and welcome them to our institutional memory and our community memory. And so in many ways, this evening is about re-remembering ourselves, but it's also genuinely a welcome and an introduction um, of who we are to you and who you're engaging with. And I'm, I'm grateful to you for your willingness to come and sit in this awkward place. I acknowledge it's a very awkward place that you're in. And you're good people, and I thank you for standing in this awkward place with us. And my commitment to Colin and Molly to be here today is that we wouldn't be mean. <laughs> because a hundred people on Cortez in a room, that could be scary. Um, and so my commitment is that we would not only be respectful, but we would be joy-filled and love-filled. And so far, that has been the tone that's been set. So I just ask that as we continue into this discussion and Q&A time, that we hold that spirit um, of respect and love and curiosity um, as we speak with each other. And certainly, Mosaic will be back here next month to speak in more detail to their their draft plans. And so I don't expect we're going to get into that level of specificity today. There's been so much presented, really, as a re-remembering of who we are. Um, could Do we have that slide, Kai? Um, the, the satellite image? Yes, I absolutely will. Um, so at the very beginning of the presentations tonight, Bruce shared a, a satellite image of logging in this area. And I'm asking that Kai bring it back up because in many ways we could just look at this and then go home. Um, this is a, a, a slide from satellite imagery from the University of Maryland, I believe. Is that right? Um, and all of the colors here are logging that has taken place in the last 20 years. Do I have that right? 2000 to 2020. And for any of you that know the, the geography, you will see that almost everywhere in black is either park or mountain, with a few exceptions. And the massive exception is Cortez. <laughs> and that is because of the intergenerational commitment of this place. And that is the social inoperability into which you walk, and 
welcome and I'm sorry. <laughs> and I'm not sorry. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's gonna, we're going to have a relationship now. Welcome. <laughs> Um, so it's, it's in that context that you've heard so much tonight about all the different ways that we love and interact with and respond with our forests. And, and apologies for rendering it so simplistic, but it seems like in the face of proposed logging from, from an entity that isn't us, we have three primary things that we try to do. First is we get to know our land in so many different ways. We map and we ground truth and we photograph and we do field work with creeks and streams and, and, and on and on and on. The second is we protest and we um, go to media and we go to shareholder meetings and we you know, work with international organizations. And so there's a resistance piece of it. And then the third is purchase, really. And the Children's Forest Trust has been working on that for over a decade now. And I had the honor of convening a couple of weeks ago a meeting with Suzanne Samard, who gave us some of her time, which was remarkable, and some of the key organizations on the island and some of the really most connected people on the island to ask, is it even worth really having a serious conversation about purchasing more of the lands than, than children's forest? Could we purchase delight? Could we purchase it all? I don't know, but that conversation is, is expanding. Um, so I, I just offer that as a framing for our discussion tonight. There's are many ways of responding to, to your proposals. Um, that is to work with you to, to make what happens on the ground you know, as best as we can. The other is to say, absolutely no way, go away. And that may happen to some degree, depending on where you go and what you want to do. And the other is, can we put a hold on it and can we raise a stupid amount of money and buy you out? And, and that, it's, it's tens of millions of dollars, but mo that money exists here. That is possible. It's outrageous. It's ridiculous. But it's the only way of stopping being in this constant loop of resistance. So that's on the table. But we're going to need a bit of time if we're going to figure out how to do that. Anyway, that's, re that's really embryonic. But I just offer that as a frame for our discussion. I'm noticing it's quarter to nine. And often these meetings go two and a half hours. Probably after two, we start getting tired. So I acknowledge that we've taken up the majority of the time beyond what we anticipated to do. As Kristen said, this will be one of many. We, we come together back out of the woodwork and rally in these times, and, and we will continue to gather. So with that, I turn it over to you. There's a couple of mics. Think. That's it for another edition of Folk U Radio. If you'd like to learn more about Folk U, or subscribe to our podcast series, visit us at folku.ca. That's F-O-L-K-U dot C-A. Folku is produced at CKTZ 89.5 FM, Cortez Radio dot C-A. My little brain's almost always got something lame it's got to say. It's embarrassing all the stupid things I can't